So not only did you perhaps experience a little bit of difficulty today and settling in, settling into being with your bodies and dealing with your, um, with your minds and the retreat culture, and the weirdness of, of moving slower and, and, and noticing everybody else moving slower and it's an adjustment. And, but the difficulties that arise are not just um, the difficulties of settling in, it's more clearly coming face to face with the, the nature of experience. Did you notice over the course of the day that, that uh, you had pleasant experiences? Anybody have pleasant experiences? Did you notice how when your experience was pleasant, it seemed like time went very quickly? It just zipped by. And you said, this is a, this is a snap. I can, you know, this will be over in no time. <laughs> or I, at that point, it's, oh, I wish I was going to be here longer. And then it very quickly changes into unpleasant. Anybody have any unpleasant today? And while it was unpleasant, it's likely that your whole perception of time is that it was endless. And out of that kind of reaction to the unpleasant, you probably, most people do on their first day of a retreat. Some manage to actually succeed, but I'm sure most of you, in some moment, planned your escape. (laughs) Or at least gave rise to the thought, why did I come here? <laughs> what am I doing here? So it isn't just the, the difficulties of settling in, but you came face to face with the ever-changing state of our experience, otherwise known as the first noble truth, that life has a, a, uh, is marked by, by um, insecurity, by incessant um, change. And not only did you experience insight into the, what we call the first noble truth, that life has this kind of instability associated with it, it you also experienced very much the same thing that, that the Buddha began to awaken to in his own life. You know, I imagine that life was a little bit slower in those days. And with a someone with an inquiring mind would naturally begin to to see what's going on. And he had, as you all know the story, I think most everyone that comes on retreat knows the, at least a little bit of the story of the Buddha. He had an enormous capacity and accessibility of of pleasures and and things to distract him and things to delight him, etc., and yet he increasingly felt uh, dissatisfied. He increasingly felt that things were just not quite um, stable. They, just, there was no real refuge in the experiences that he was having. So as we framed it last night, of the taking of the three refuges, he was seeking a reliable refuge. And he may not even know, he didn't even know, and maybe you didn't even know or had, have clearly articulated that, you were, that you're looking, 
that you're seeking. It's, it's a kind of desire, but it's a holy desire. It's a, it's a desire that no other desire can fulfill to, to find something stable. And I think all of us are, have been doing that just like he was. And what really turned his attention toward, uh, toward, you could say, putting the insight that he was having to good use, what turned him from turning, instead of going from, from one pleasurable experience to another and having it become the cause of and generate even more dissatisfaction, what turned his heart toward an inner journey was the, the more macro understanding that uh, we all die. That every single one of us who is born, it's amazing. It's one of those things that I, I always think of this Tibetan word that's used a lot. It's called emaho. Means, and it's the word means how amazing. How amazing that the very definition of birth, as the Wiley's Dictionary puts it, is the leading cause of death. That it is just comes with the territory. Yet there is something in us that, that thinks we have forever. There's something in us that, that uh, kind of self-deception that, that uh, causes us to not notice this obvious fact. And consequently, we continue to look for relief in things that not only are we going to die, but we look for relief in things that, are, that have a very short, short uh, shelf life, that don't last very long. And so the Buddha realized when he was wandering around, he saw that, there was that, that if you're born, it is the leading cause of sickness, it's the leading cause of aging, and it's the leading cause of death. And that may be obvious intellectually, but it really pierced his heart, and he experienced this um, kind of shock and dismay, and saw that there was a kind of futility in trying to find relief in the same things that he'd been finding it, uh, been searching for it. He had, like I said, he had access to so much pleasure relative to his time, and not unlike the privilege that uh, that people born in in the first, you know, first world, and developing, developed countries, and um, yeah, it's just relatively speaking, enormous privilege. And yet, everyone's life, to some degree, is marked by a feeling of. It's not quite right. That's why we end up at IMS, (laughs) which is the good news, which is the good news. But at the point of of realizing the reality of sickness and old age and dying and death, fortunately he saw also in his wanderings, he saw an example of someone who didn't seem to be uh, running from silence, didn't seem to be running to the next experience, seemed to have a a very peaceful countenance, uh, um, 
an ease of being and the form of a, of a renunciate, a monk. And so these four things, these four experiences that he had, coming in, in, into contact with sickness, coming into contact with uh, old age, coming into contact with death, and coming into contact with this renunciate, uh, these have been described as the four heavenly messengers. And they're heavenly because they, they wake us up and they point us in the other direction. They, they invite us to turn our attention back to ourselves. And how far do we have to travel to do that? We have to just stop. I mean, stop our mind going out and, and tuning in to what's right here. And at first, he knew that it was that peace or this reliable refuge was an inside job, but there was really no one. There was, he didn't really know what to do, but he did hear about some meditation teachers. And, they, um, and he started practicing with them, and he, he started having very powerful meditation experiences. He got... Um, his mind became stilled, his body became calmed. And he used very, in those early practices, he used elements of what we do here. And even though he knew that, that there was a kind of happiness that, that uh, one can experience in life from being a good person, from being harmless, from giving others the gift of what he called later the gift of fearlessness. People don't have to be afraid of you. And what he later called the bliss of blamelessness. He knew there was a lot of happiness involved and a great protection for the heart and mind. But, but even being a good person didn't quite, doesn't quite make you truly happy. And the reason I'm using that word truly happy is because I had an experience in the early 1980s with the, um, with the, a teacher, an Indian teacher who used to come to the States and I also went to visit him uh, in Asia. His name was Anagarka Munindra and, and he came to IMS and maybe even some people in this room sat with, with Anagarka Munindra. But he was a, a delightful, he was Joseph Goldstein's main teacher in India. Spent, Joseph spent six years sitting with him in India and Joseph, for those of you, I'm sure most everyone here knows Joseph is one of the founding teachers at this center. But he was a, um, a, just a delightful person and seemed quite joyful. And you could ask him any small little question about the teachings. And within a moment of the simplest question, you would be then sitting there for about 45 minutes listening to him just joyously uh, respond. I had the good fortune of being his attendant on one of the retreats that I was managing. This was some years after I started practicing. So I basically followed him around and he was quite a lot older than me, but I couldn't keep up with him. And I took him shopping and he took the greatest interest in the little details of everything. And he loved boom boxes. He he was crazy about boom boxes. I helped him pick out his first boom box. That's just a little aside. But after I spent some time with him, after he kind of sized me up a little bit, and I was young and full of myself and um, 
generally good disposition, etc. But when he said goodbye to me, he looked me in the eyes, and of course I may be dramatizing it because we do have a tendency to rewrite history. But he looked into my eyes and he said, may you truly be happy. And I said to myself, well, does that mean, is this just some kind of beautiful blessing or is he seeing something? Am I really not as happy as I think I am? And and I started to have these little doubts going through my mind. Well, maybe I'm just uh, just in a good mood and maybe, uh, maybe I'm just just skating along, just avoiding the, the real truth that I'm not really happy. And you know, I started asking questions. But it got me very interested in what was meant by, by true happiness. And then I very quickly found out that the Buddha was called Sukhiya, the happy one. He wasn't called, as many of you may think, the, the great sufferer, you know, because... As a kind of misunderstanding that it's all the, the truth is it's all about happiness and that which is onward leading toward joy and happiness. You often will read that the the whole of the noble eightfold path is it's I've heard it said once it's productive of joy it it makes joy, and that's what it's all about and so the Buddha has talked a lot about th- what b- brings happiness. And he, and I think a very central, um, a central concept that I think is important to, to know, it's both important to know uh, philosophically or intellectually, but it's most important to know it uh, experientially, that there are basically two kinds of happiness. And so when you think of the whole path of awakening, you can think about it in the context of what he called lokiya sukha, which is sukha is the word for comfort, happiness, ease. Lokiya sukha, and the other word is called lokutra sukha. Lokiya sukha is what we would call a worldly happiness, conventional happiness, the happiness that depends on, uh, on conditions being a certain way. You're happy when those conditions are there and you're not so happy when they're not. So this is called, it's called conditional happiness. It's called um, the happiness that depends on satisfying some hunger. And consequently, this worldly happiness, this conventional kind of happiness, is also in the Buddha's teachings called the happiness of bondage. And it's subsumed under the umbrella of the, the teachings on, that it, that, uh, on what's called dukkha. And dukkha is the world, word that's sometimes translated as suffering. But it's really the word more accurately translated as uh, that which is uh, difficult to bear, uh, uneasy, queasy, unsatisfactory, uh, unreliable. So it has a myriad of meanings that just point to the, the sense that something is uh, something about um, whatever that experience is, is just, it's not quite it. So even though conventional happiness brings to us so much pleasure, and it is so, in fact, it is so necessary in our lives to have 
conventional happiness, to have our senses be gladdened by things that we see and hear, smell and taste and felt. If we didn't have some kind of sensual pleasure, we, we, we don't function so well. So it comes with the territory. We're sensual beings. So if you have this idea that you need to somehow give up all your pleasures, this is a, I think it's a misunderstanding of the teachings. But nevertheless, the Buddha wanted everyone, in the teachings, everyone to be clear that even though there are so many ways of enjoying conventional happiness, lokiya sukha, that ultimately any kind of pleasure that is, um, is conditional, is temporary, is unreliable. And therefore, um, it cannot give you lasting happiness. And not only can it not give you lasting happiness, but when, our, when, we, when we become devoted to or associate our well-being with... Um, with experiences of, of conventional happiness, if we make that the end of our search, you could say. The Buddha described that as, as having misplaced faith in something that can't make you truly happy. So even being a, a wonderful, wonderful person, a person who doesn't cause harm, who has the great protection of a mind that is not continually reverberating from the effects of your actions, what you said, what you didn't say, what you did, what you didn't do. Just think about the things that you've, the ways that you've acted that you've caused yourself or others harm. If your mind is protected from that kind of impulse, it experiences a great delight. And as I mentioned before, this is sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness. There's a, a joy that comes with it. The Buddha saw that that, um, that joy did not really liberate the mind, liberate the heart, doesn't, because it doesn't give a sense of lasting happiness. Contrasted with the other kind of happiness, just for the purpose of this conversation, it's called Lokutra Sukha. And it's loosely translated as Lokiya Sukha is, uh, is bound by the world, worldly, the happiness of, that depends on satisfying hunger. Lokutra Sukha is the happiness that is unstuck from the world, the happiness that is unconditioned, the happiness that does not depend on conditions being a certain way, the happiness that is free of any hunger that doesn't depend on satisfying any kind of hunger. And it's important that we, we know that that's where, in some way, that's where we're going if we engage in this. That's where wisdom and love takes us to, to a realization that I always think of when I think of that realization, I think of Albert Camus, and he, in his very simple line, he said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. Or Ramakrishna, kind of ecstatic Hindu 
guy who said, oh, longing mind, dwell within the depths of your own pure nature. Don't seek your home elsewhere. Uh, Don't confine your innate infinity within the mansions of name and form. He goes on, he says, "Your, your naked awareness, your nature alone, your naked awareness alone is the inexhaustible abundance for which you've longed so desperately. So there is, these passages point to an innate, uh, some would call it a primordial freedom that is, uh, that is our natural state, that is the nature of our mind. That that happiness, that unconditional happiness is the nature, is within us, within each of us. It's not just within some, it's, 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 the very nature of even the, the minds through which you're perceiving right now. And this called Lokutra Sukha, unstuck, this very nature of your mind is unassailable, independent of whatever's going on. So the, it's free. So why didn't the Buddha just say that right up front? Say, you're free. Why didn't he just share the good news that your, your own mind is already the Buddha? Why didn't he say that? I'm curious, anybody have any ideas why he didn't say that? You feel free to speak into the room if you like. Come on. I think he wanted people to experience it. He wanted people to experience it, okay. No one wouldn't would have believed him. About the journey. What's that? It's about, it's about the journey. It'd be too easy. Too easy. You know, you're re- these answers are reminding me that in the Tibetan tradition, there's a teaching called the Four Faults. Why we don't recognize this, and one is that it's um, that it's too close. The second is that it's too vast. We can't somehow fathom the. The, the grandeur of our own nature. And it's, uh, it's, too, um, it's too wondrous. Can't believe it. Just somebody said can't believe it. And then the last one, it's too easy. Can't believe that we simply need to uh, get to know what's already here. So I think that he, I'm not sure if the Buddha would have described those four faults, but it is a teaching from the Tibetan tradition. But he saw, after his own awakening, he saw that there were, were those with a little dust on their eyes after he realized the, this kind of unconditional happiness he saw that there were those, and I include all of us, who if, if pointed back to themselves, and I saw, I just was remembering today, Alila got kind of giddy when she, I, I think you were just responding to the amazing accessibility of, of, um, of freedom and ease and just the, how much we can discover by not going anywhere, how everything that we need is, is, uh, is right here. 
And what a tremendous relief. I don't know if that reflects what you were feeling, but... So it's really about the, the joy of, of waking up to the way things are. But the Buddha saw that there were, not only was there, were there those with just a little dust, but, there were, but that most people were, um, were wandering around completely confused, caught up in the residue and the effect of having associated one's well-being with that kind of worldly happiness because it not only gives so much pleasure, but it leaves in its wake that misplaced faith in things that are constantly slipping through our fingers. It leaves in its wake this feeling of dissatisfaction and nobody wants to feel that. And so rather than actually just feel the dissatisfaction, let it be our path, let it bring us to the, the heart of compassion, let, it, let us just hang out right where we are. Instead, our mind immediately, just by its conditioning, immediately goes and looks for another experience. I had an experience once of, I had practiced a while and I was living in San Francisco and it was about 10 at night and I was very comfortably tucked into my bed and I was reading a nice little Dharma book or some book. And then the thought came into my mind, you know, I would love to have an ice cream cone. So this is a seemingly innocuous, simple pleasure. Everybody likes it. Not everybody likes ice cream, but I like ice cream. And yet it's 10 at night and this thought comes into my mind. It produced a pleasant feeling in in my body, pleasant feeling in my mind. And I was, my mind was a little tired and weak and I didn't really track what was going on. And before I knew it, the clothes were on and I lived on the third floor of an apartment building, walked down the three floors, got in the car, drove all the way up to 24th Street in San Francisco in the center of a little neighborhood called Noe Valley went to my favorite ice cream parlor called Double Rainbow. And there I was, at, I think it was by this time it was 10.30 at night, nobody on the street anymore. And there I am getting my ice cream and I, I so I just entered into that trance that I needed, I wanted, I have to have it. And there I was standing in the street taking the first lick of ice cream and then realized what I had just done. And all of a sudden, which is the, if we paid attention, this is what we'd often feel. I felt very self-conscious. I was half-dressed. Uh, <laughs> forget I said that. <laughs> very self-conscious, a little bit embarrassed that I had just been dragged by a state of mind all the way to 24th Street. And then that particular little lifetime that I entered into it, it ended. And ordinarily what I would do is, is, uh, is just generate another desire or just kind of gloss over the unsatisfactoriness that I felt, the embarrassment, the self-consciousness that I felt. It's so funny, sitting in this hall, I also remember about a yogi who had a very a great fondness for their state's football team. 
And in the middle of the three-month retreat, the thought came that they wanted to see the annual big game between the, the two uh, colleges uh, that were big rivals. And the person started, it was so strong that the person started uh, engaging the teacher in interviews about whether or not they were going to uh, watch this game in the middle of a three-month re- retreat. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Somebody overheard the interviews and wrote a note to the yogi saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm not able to practice right now because my, um, my wife is here and she's, she's pregnant and has having some kind of complication, so I'd be happy to drive you. <laughs> so one thing led to another and the yogi went off to 40 miles to a motel in Amherst to watch a football game. And then you know, realized what had happened after the, the team lost. <laughs> but I imagine that even if the team had won, there would still be that moment when it passes, the, the passing of that, that pleasure. And in the wake of that, that feeling of oh, 40 miles, so empty, unreliable. But it turned out that that yogi came back and they practiced as though their, their hair was on fire after that because they realized how, how absurd it was. So, so even if you do crazy things on retreat, it, it may be put to good use. But I don't recommend it, but, but if you do, it's <laughs> just to give you the real inside story, I was the yogi. <laughs> So you can see <laughs> you can see why I was interested in being truly happy. <laughs> but what happened to the to the Buddha that um it, that at least moved him from the the addiction to the ordinary uh pleasures of the senses it didn't mean he abandoned them, but, you know, all pleasure. In fact, the the most beautiful teaching I've ever heard about renunciation uh, is that renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away, that they just, that they pass quickly and they don't give a sense of reliable happiness. And this is why the, this, our normal uh, or conventional kinds of happiness is sometimes described as the happiness of, of bondage. Dukkha. So the Buddha realized this and started his meditation practice. And he, like I said, he, he ex- started to experience very um, wonderful states of mind and uh, states of being quite present, quite immersed and absorbed in the, the immediacy of the present moment. And his body and mind came together in a, a kind of perfect harmony. And he experienced a, a sense of um, what's sometimes described as a sense of one-pointedness. Just a single point. single point where he began to naturally, when, we, when any of us arrive at a, a, a single-pointedness, just here, and at least in those moments where we don't want to be somewhere else, we naturally begin to feel that that one point connects us with everything. So he had this great experience. 
And he sometimes, uh, it's been described as, uh, as the part of the Eightfold Path that, that re- reflects the, the purification of the mind. When the mind is pure, just one-pointed in this way, one experiences, and it's, it's, it's accessible to everyone to some degree, one experiences what uh, is described as an unmixed happiness, a sense of great joy, great bliss, sometimes called the, the bliss or the, the, the uh, happiness of, of a concentrated heart, concentrated mind. And unmixed happiness, it means that, that it's not mixed up in any way with, there's, at that time, there's no desire to be somewhere else, to be someone else, to, to get rid of anything. There's no shadow of any kind of um, what are called torments or defilements in the mind. Nothing, no greed or hatred or ignorance in those moments. And the, and in the case of the, of the Buddha, and something that happens to many people from time to time in their practice, it seemed to be so much more pleasurable than anything else that he'd ever experienced. Much more pleasurable than, than the, the ordinary pleasures of the senses. And it seemed to last quite a lot longer. So it could be sustained for longer periods of time. But in the course of the, the Buddha's exploration of happiness, he saw that, you know, this is really a, a very refined kind of pleasure. But this is really, in some ways, just a um, high-class worldly pleasure. That because, because this, that kind of experience of great concentration as wonderful as it is and how beneficial it is to our mind and our body because it tends to have the effect of deconditioning our, our tendency to, uh, to want to be excessively um, charged up and, and crazy and chaotic. We start to fall in love with peace and that's a good thing. But he saw that ultimately even the, the best of those kinds of experiences would ultimately pass away. And leave in their in their wake, the, as we we sometimes call the the corpses of previous experiences. We end up carrying them. They end up becoming a weight. The pleasurable experiences, and we then spend the next sitting or the next retreat looking for that experience again. Any of you had that experience? Had a little taste, and then <gasps> when am I, and what is that? That looking for pleasant experience. That is what's called um, craving. That, it, that puts us into a state of mind that, that colors our present moment's experience with the ideas, I can't be fully happy now. I can't be happy until I experience that, that next taste of this nectar. And it's the very, the very thing that prevents us from experiencing a true sense of relief is being caught in that state of waiting or wanting or hoping. And we continually we are practiced at putting our our hearts and minds into a state of suspended happiness to a state that uh, of happiness that depends on getting somewhere and it turns our relationship to the present moment 
into one of, uh, as Eckhart Tolle says, it turns it into the present moment into a place that we pass through on our way to something else. Or it turns it into an obstacle or it turns it into the enemy. When in reality, reality is only present. It's the only reality we have. Everything else is imaginary. So we're literally overlooking the very source of connection with life, which is our deepest longing is to feel connected, to feel at home, to feel free right where we are. Sit in the middle of it all. Seems like a good time to read from Donald Babcock's poem from the New Yorker magazine, October 4th, 1947. It's called The Little Duck. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree, but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's religion. And the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. So that leads to the next phase of the exploration of of happiness. So we haven't found any reliable happiness and even the even though it's a very central part of our path to, to, uh, to, develop, uh, a, um, to develop the quality of harmlessness and to, to purify our actions so that we experience that bliss of blamelessness. And this actually makes possible to, if we're not being so affected by our actions and we're, we're, we feel we're not thinking so much about um, we're not so disturbed by our actions, we, it makes possible for us to be able to come to a sense of single-pointedness, to come to be simply in the present moment. And you'll find that the longer you're here, the present, what we call the present, the sense of now reality, becomes so much more compelling that the desire to be somewhere else starts to diminish. You start to really know that you're already hanging out exactly 
where you've always wanted to. But at first it seems like the present is is hard to settle into because we're kind of disembodied and we're so reactive to the, all the feelings that happen here. But we slowly we begin to accommodate that. But it, it helps to, um, to act wisely and skillfully because if you, if you don't, it's the way that it's been sometimes talked about it, that trying to find that sense of home in the present moment without having a foundation of, of non-harming would be like trying to row a boat without untying it from the dock. You just, your mind is, just doesn't settle. But nevertheless, the settling of the mind itself is not necessarily liberation. It's not freedom. It's not lokutra sukha. It's not unstuck from the world. And at the time of the, the Buddha, that was the extent, at least as far as what he had learned, that was the extent of the teachings on happiness, that the, the teachers that he worked with, the highest happiness was to enter into that state of unmixed, that, that great joy. And there wasn't a, a keen appreciation that those were temporary experiences that depended on the conditions of being in a meditative state. Not very reliable. Happy when you have it, not so happy when you don't. That pretty much describes most of what, uh, most of what we have associated our well-being with. But fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop with that. He, first he tried, after that experience, he tried ascetic practices to, to transcend his uh, body by denying it sustenance, starving it, uh, being, uh, doing... Um, self-mortification kinds of practices. And all that did was take him to the, instead of indulging in great meditative states, it, it took it, indulging in, in self-denial just made him sick and tired and unable to practice, unable to find any relief. But then he remembered a time, and this is where the, he remembered a, a, what might be called the sweet spot. He remembered a time when he was quite young, he was well-fed, his, his environment was to some degree comfortable, resting easily. He realized that we do need some sustenance, we need, uh, we need uh, wholesome conditions, both inner and outer conditions, to the extent that we can uh, have them. We, it's very helpful for our practice. Our hearts need to be gladdened. So it's not a practice of denial, but it's having a wise relationship with the pleasures of this world and understanding their, limit, understanding their pleasure, understanding their limitations, but ultimately understanding what it's like to be free of uh, the dependency on them. So at this point, he took some food and he started to sit again using the, the, uh, the power of mind that developed through the, the different concentration practices that he had been doing. And the way it's sometimes described is that he entered into these great states of concentration again. But instead of letting the pleasure of it overwhelm him or just becoming intoxicated, instead he just applied the, the power of his attention to just 
carefully examine everything that came into his heart and mind. So even though he had had this kind of macro view of of change and impermanence, sickness, old age and death, it wasn't until he had a much more intimate view, experiential view from the inside, moment by moment, when he started to see that as he paid close attention to things, he started to see that every little micro moment of sensations and moods and thoughts and feelings and ideas, everything was in a constant state of a flux. Everything changing. And he noticed something else. That the more he noticed this flow of changing experience, the more he was just there with things just the way they were presenting themselves. Curious. Realize you cannot be curious, interested, mindful, and suffer in the same moment. So his, as his mind stopped grabbing the things that were all changing, stopped pushing away the things that were unpleasant, and, ju- and was curious about everything, and that's our invitation to try to be curious about everything. To be able to say, even when it's difficult to the extent that you can, isn't this interesting? This is what's happening now. Now that's a training because we're in the habit of, of contracting and becoming quite fearful and reactive. And then, and then that creates pressure and then our mind starts strategizing how we're going to either get out of the retreat or find a, a pleasurable experience or we start waiting for the meal or waiting for the Dharma talk or waiting for the Dharma talk to be over. <laughs> so our tendency is so much to be reactive uh, that we, are, it's, we don't stop long enough to see that the pleasurable things come, they are temporary, the unpleasant things come and they're temporary. And that it isn't so much what's showing up in our minds. And this is the heart of the, of the teachings. It's not so much what's happening. It really doesn't matter what's showing up in our minds, in our bodies. What matters is the way that we're relating to it. It makes all the difference, the attitude of mind that's being, that we're meeting our experience with. And when we, when we are truly attentive, interested, right with what's happening, in that moment, our, our attitude is slowly, you may not appreciate this up to this point because we're just still settling in, but your attitude is slowly easing because those moments of, of just being with things the way they are are moments free of wanting things to be different. Moments free of resistance, free of contentiousness, free of, of straining, free of, of being caught up in a, in a story of, of unworthiness or, or of who we think we have to become. We discover things, it's not so much what's happening, it's, it's the fact that if I'm not so reactive to what's happening, then I can... I can actually respond. If I see that my knee is burning and, and um, I'm starting to get reactive, I may 
from that point of wisdom, from that point of, of curiosity, studying that experience, I may make the determination, it'd be wise right now to change my posture, <laughs> to refresh myself a little bit. But if I'm so busy reacting, uh, I, I don't, I'm not able to, to meet that experience with wisdom, with love. Even though I love myself, I start to do all the things that actually add to my dis-ease. It's very innocent. Our, it's not personal, this, our reactive minds. And they, they started long before we knew what we were doing anyway. You, we're not to blame. So the more the Buddha paid attention to the flow of experience, very much like we're inviting you to do here, noticed a few things. One, he noticed the, that everything was arising, changing, passing away. He knew that there was nothing of what was arising that could be held on to, could be made personal, could be made me, could be made mine, because it was arising, passing all by itself. Everything was just happening. Just think about it today, all the, the thoughts that you had. Now, we often think that uh, I had this many, you know, it's said that we have 65,000 thoughts a day and that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. You think that there, do you think that there's some little person in there saying, now think 65,000 thoughts? But yet there's a tendency to, to, to apply a kind of blame, criticism, the fact that the mind is thinking. But he saw that this whole process of thinking was quite selfless. It's just happening. And yet the more he paid attention to the flow of experience, the less he took it personally. The, less, the more he understood that there was nothing there that could be clung to effectively. His mind started to relax. Became less and less reactive. And the same experiences were still rising in, in his mind. The same desires, the same doubts, the same fears. But his mind stopped reacting to it. And consequently, the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind got. It was as though noticing each thing was making his mind brighter and brighter until until he experienced, the way it's sometimes described as his mind was shining in its clarity. And there's a, a passage that's often shared on retreats that he, a description of the, the difference between uh, that awakened understanding and the unawakened understanding. And it goes like this, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is colored by the, all the defilements that visit it, all the, the difficult states of mind that visit it. This, the, the person who, the non-yogi, doesn't understand, so there's no cultivation of their mind. They get caught up in it, in other words. But it goes on to say, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by the defilements that visit it. This the yogi understands, 
So there's cultivation of the mind. So at this point of seeing the, the arising and passing of things and not interfering, the Buddha had his first taste, one way of talking about it, the first taste of Lokia, uh, Lokutra Sukha, realization that the, that the nature of his mind was untouched by whatever visited. And it didn't seem that sense of, and there was a great joy, sometimes called the joy of equanimity, a great joy that arose in his heart, the, the joy of being non-reactive. So he was experiencing this taste, this glimpse of a well-being that didn't depend on what was happening. A first taste of the happiness, a sense of more freedom. And as he sat there a little longer, with a full, with full understanding that 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 there was nothing in the world, in the world of changing conditions, that could give any lasting happiness, his mind, as I said before, it relaxed. And in a, hanging out there a little longer, in a flash of insight, his, um, in a flash of insight, he had a realization. He he became absorbed in that, in in the nature of the mind, and he realized that he realized what's called uh, nibbana. He realized that his own, the nature of his own mind was unconditioned, deathless, free. And he sometimes called the highest happiness, happiness of freedom. And it's at that point he, he saw, his, he had a realization that it became all very clear why beings seem to wander in, in so much confusion and overlook this open secret that freedom is you, freedom is in the nature of our mind. He saw that we, we wander because we can't, we haven't fully accepted the fact that life has difficulties. We haven't fully accepted the fact that there is sickness and old age and death and that we don't always get what we want and we don't always want what we get and we will ultimately be separated from everything that we hold near and dear. And and this is not a pessimistic view of life, it's just realistic, he was a realist. And by not accepting it, our mind is in a constant state of running. It expresses itself as a kind of craving for more experience, for more, for more, for more existence. And we just keep going. We're in that state of suspended happiness so much of the time that there's no rest. But he didn't stop with both the fact that there is difficulty in life 
and that what turns the basic unsatisfactoriness and difficulty of life into mental suffering is our deeply conditioned habit of wanting it to be different. He didn't stop there. He said that there is a possibility. There is a cessation. There is a falling away of that habit, that deeply conditioned habit of craving and aversion and uh, and the effect of craving and aversion as it creates this constant state of wanting to be somebody different, become something, obsessed with what's next. He says there's an end to that. And so with the first truth about the challenges of life, he said, open to it, accept it, let it be. And with the cause of suffering, the cause of mental distress, craving, let it go. Open that tight fist of grasping. And with the end of suffering, he said, realize it. Here and now. And finally, there is a path that you can create out of the fabric of your own life, moment to moment, uh, that includes within it the purification of your actions, which creates the ground of, um, of happiness, of worldly happiness, and then the purification of mind that make, creates the ground for being able to see clearly. And then finally, the purification of you, where you actually see for yourself that nothing whatsoever can be clung to. And you see through the whole illusion of this sense of, of separateness that plagues us so much, that makes us chronically feel like we're apart from the flow of life. And with that third one, he says, this must be realized and the path, this must be uh, cultivated, must be created. So as Jennifer Wellwood puts it in her poem, the Dakini speaks, she says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride, let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot, what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope.
So I realize that even as I read that, it's so direct. Uh, I notice my my heart quiver a little bit. This that little element of my mind that doesn't want to completely digest that. And but that's our practice. But I won't stop with that passage. I'll I'll end with the to me the joyous words of of the. Tibetan Lama Gendon Rinpoche, which to me is, is a, a piece on happiness. It's called Free and Easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and, and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgments upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply allow the entire game to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, Infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of the spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous, everything unfolds by itself. So let's just remain, you don't need to change postures, just remain quiet for a moment. May all beings realize the highest happiness. May all beings be free. May all beings live with ease. And may our practice be of benefit to all beings everywhere.
Thank you for hanging in there. The first night, it's sometimes hard to sit through a whole talk. So I appreciate you staying with it. And we now have about a half hour for, a little less than a half hour for walking meditation, just moment by moment, staying where you are. I don't mean physically staying where you are, but in your attention, just being here. So thank you.